There's a story of, uh, of a rich man who, who died and he went to heaven. And he was greeted, uh, and so he arrived at the pearly gates, and he was greeted by St. Peter. Uh, and Peter welcomed him and said, it's great to see you, I'm glad that you've, you've arrived. Um, let me take you now to your, to your new home. And this, this rich man's very excited by this. He, he sees what's, what's around him. And so as Peter leads him along the, the streets of gold through heaven, he, got, he walks past these castles that are just so magnificent and spectacular. And he goes, wow, that would be amazing. And then they, he, he sees that the size of some of the mansions. And he goes, well, it's a step down from the castle, but wow, uh, that would be awesome to live in. And sees these, these cottages that are you know, smaller, but, but they're still just so beautiful and so you know, kind of endearing and homely that, that just thinks that would be great. But eventually, Peter, you know, they just keep walking. And eventually, they, they come to the end of the street. And there's just this you know, wooden, run-down, ugly, nearly falling down shack. And Peter says, welcome to your home. And the man goes... Well, he's not, he's not happy, to, to say the least. He, he's he's um, filled with surprise and, and he's upset. He goes, why do, I get, why do I get this shabby, ugly thing when there's, when, when there's all of those glorious mansions that, that I could live in? And Peter replied to him by saying, well, we did the best with the money that you sent us. <laughs> These kind of, kind of jokes, these, you know, pearly gates kind of jokes, they're, they're common and familiar to us, um, even if, to be honest, I had to Google them. But <laughs> do you know what, in doing so, because um, my, my, my humor is much more spontaneous, you know, not, not the scripted stuff so much. But do you know what, like, don't Google them, because there are so many, majority of them, that either they're not good or they're definitely not appropriate for church. And so, so that was like the best I could find that, that could fit both categories. Um, but but the idea, this idea of being at the gates of heaven and there being a decision made as to whether you can be let in or, or otherwise, it's a common frame for, for the rest of the joke. Just like you can say, you know, three men walked into a bar and you already know that, it, that it's going to be a joke. It's, it's this common kind of story or, or frame. And the same was true in Jesus' day. Uh, sure, people, you know, weren't being greeted by St. Peter. He was still alive at, at that point. Um, but the idea of a story being told that has a, as its context the, the gates of the afterlife uh, and then this sorting out between which direction you, you go, that was a common enough uh, theme. And so it seems that Jesus picks up on that idea in the parable that we're looking at today, which is from Luke 16. So if you've got uh, your Bible and your phone, open it up there to Luke 16. We're starting at, at verse 19. And it says there, that there was a rich man. So this is Jesus telling this story, telling this parable. He says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and they licked his sores. Now, we're not in the afterlife yet. There's, there's no gates of heaven uh, in view and still very much in this life. But the familiar beats are being hit. 
it's like when you know that someone's, when someone starts to tell a story, actually this happens all the time when I catch up with Roderick, Roderick starts to tell a story and it's like, is this, is this real or is this, uh, is this going to be a joke? And, and so there's those familiar things you know, that happen when you know when, when someone's starting to tell uh, a story and, that's what's, and setting it up for a joke. And so that's what's going on here. And in the introduction to the story, Jesus sets up for us the, this contrast. And on the f- first, there, there's the rich man. Now, to call him rich, that's probably grossly understated, uh, as, as it becomes evident as Jesus describes him. Because he, he's a man who's dressed in purple. Now, regardless of what you, your fashion choices, what you think about color, uh, about his color choice, this man was flaunting his wealth by wearing only purple. It was the most expensive of dyes to use because it was rare and the process of making it was you know, convoluted and, and involved. And so only the very rich and the very powerful could afford to wear purple. And this guy wore it all the time. Not only that, the NIV says that he wore fine linen. But that's a very sanitized uh, phrase of what was really going on. What it's referring to is the Egyptian cotton that was used for the best undergarments. So not only did he wear purple for all to see, but his underwear, his socks and jocks, if you like, you know, that, that nobody could see, that that was of the highest quality. He spent money on his underwear. Next, Jesus says that he lived in luxury every day. And other translations say something like he was feasting lavishly every day. He was enjoying rich and gourmet foods. He was feasting on them, presumably with other rich friends around him every day. He didn't stop and he didn't let his servants stop for anything as mundane as like a Sabbath or for a rest day or anything like that. Now, he was was rich and he was constantly indulging in the fruit of his wealth. So that's the rich man. But in contrast, just outside the gate of the rich man's property, and that's another indicator of his wealth, that he had a large enough property to have a kind of fence around it and a gate that kept him separated from all the common masses of people. But just outside the gate of his property lay Lazarus. Now, Lazarus was a beggar. He had nothing but only that which he received as a gift from others. And he he lay at the gate. Perhaps he he couldn't walk, and he had been carried there each day, knowing that that the rich man outside whose gate he was waiting, the rich man had actually the resources and the capacity to be able to help him. He was a man covered in sores, we read. So, So where others would admire the purple clothes of the rich man, Lazarus was probably an eyesore, like disgusting and and gross to, to look at. And he was so hungry, probably thin and malnourished, his bones protruding, that, that he longed even just to eat you know, the, the refuse from the man's table, just to eat the, eat the scraps that get thrown away. But he didn't have even that. And what he did have was the dogs licking his sores. And there's debate about the significance of this. On the one hand, um, he was being made ceremonially, ceremonially unclean by the dogs licking him, so that he would then be even more on the outer as a result of that. 
But I think given his state, he was probably unclean in the first place. So, so I'm not sure that that's actually the significance of the dogs. Because the other argument that I'm much more persuaded by is that the dogs, unlike the rich man, unlike anyone else, the dogs were the only ones who were showing kindness to him. That's kind of the, the state that he's in. Because the dog, you know, if it's wounded, they'll lick their own wound. And the, their saliva you know, has healing stuff in them. And so, so where no one else, especially not the rich man, is looking after Lazarus, the, the dogs are. And of course, dogs, if they, li- if they like you, they lick you. That's our, our poppy. She's, she's a licker. And you can't, <laughs> you can't avoid it. And, and so, so they're showing care and affection to this poor man. But only the dogs are. No one else. There's an interesting thing, though, to be, not to be missed here. As we think about just how not rich Lazarus is and the contrast of his experience. Lazarus is the only named character in any of Jesus' parables. Out of all the stories that Jesus tells, Lazarus is the only one who gets a name. There's the rich fool, the prodigal son, the elder brother, the woman with 10 coins, the shrewd manager, like like it goes on and on. But Lazarus in this story is the only one who gets a name. And his name means the one whom God helps. But when we see him laying there at the rich man's gate, he seems like he's the one that God is not helping. But his name is not a cruel irony, but rather it's a, it's a promise and a hope. It makes me think of someone else in the Gospels named Lazarus. In John 11, um, Jesus is sent word that Lazarus, the one that you love, is sick. Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and, and Martha, and, and they got word to Jesus, knowing that Lazarus was his friend, knowing that Jesus loved him. They sent word to him that, that Lazarus was sick. But Jesus stays where he is, and he only heads to Bethany, where Lazarus and his sisters live after a few more days. And so by the time he arrives, Lazarus is already four days in the tomb. And he seems to be another Lazarus whom God in Jesus hasn't helped. But if we're familiar with the story, we know how that story ends, don't we? Because Jesus tells Martha that I am the resurrection and the life. And then he stands outside the tomb and he calls Lazarus to come out. And this man who was dead comes out alive and well and he's restored to his family. He surely was one whom God helps. And so the same is true of the Lazarus in the story that Jesus tells. Because as, as, the, as the story continues, the scene shifts location to that expected context of the afterlife and we see God's help. We read on, verse 22, The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side and the rich man also died and was buried. Now in Hades, Where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. 
But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So in the afterlife, we see a reversal of the situations between the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is seen to indeed be the one whom God helps. Though in life he suffered, God is faithful and he is comforted in eternity, while the rich man is now the one forced to beg as he suffers. And what's really interesting in this whole story is that Lazarus never, never says anything. Though he's been given the, the distinction of being the only named character in all of Jesus' parables, he actually then remains silent throughout it all. And the implication is that, that he lived his life in a quiet faith and trust in God. That like Job, he recognized that both good and bad come from the hand of God and that either way, God is still to be trusted in and to be praised. Or, or like Paul will later say that, that whether he's in plenty or in want, that he could be content through his faith in Christ. So Lazarus knew that his circumstances were not an indicator of God's love or his presence or the absence of them, but rather that they were the context in which he lived out his trust in God's goodness. He trusted in the truth of his name that he was the one whom God helps. And so as a result of this faith and this trust, instead of laying outside the gate of an indifferent rich man now, he lies by the side of Abraham. It reflects the truth of what Jesus said about the great banquet of God that David talked about a couple of weeks ago, that the poor, the crippled and the blind and the lame are welcomed in and that those in the lowest place are honoured in the presence of the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. But in contrast to Lazarus's now exalted position, the rich man is in torment. And we're not told the specifics of what this looks like, but at the heart of it, he is separated from God and from all of God's goodness. And why has he ended up in this place? Especially as he names Abraham as his father, to which Abraham responds by calling him son. So, so this rich man was, was a Jew. He was of the people of God. And so why then is he now in torment? And the simple answer, I think, that we see is that this man didn't love God. There's, i got three pieces of evidence for, for that conclusion, that he didn't love God. We, we see the first when we put this story back in its context. Just a few verses before we read this story, if you've got it there, you can see it in verse 13. Jesus is speaking and he, and he says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And the truth of this statement is evident in this rich man's life. He loved his riches. He luxuriated in them. And it's not that being wealthy is a problem in and of itself. Paul was helped in his missionary journeys by, by Lydia, who was a dealer in purple cloth. 
And so she too was rich, but she used her resources to support gospel work as she resourced, uh, as she hosted a, a local church in her home and, and practically provided for Paul's needs. So, so the issue is not being rich. It's about the attitude to the wealth and the riches. This man flaunted his wealth and he indulged himself with it. As Abraham says to him, he's had his good things and he loved them. He loved money. And as Jesus says, he can't love money and God. In fact, the love of money leads to despising God. And so that's then the second evidence that he didn't love God. We, we noticed already that he feasted lavishly every day. He ignored the Sabbath. It, it, worse than that, really, he actively, deliberately broke the Sabbath, which was one of the core you know, Ten Commandments um, at, at the heart of Jewish faith and identity. He had no regard for the things of God, which we'll see again sooner. Uh, soon, further in the passage. Jesus has said earlier, back in, in Luke 6, that our actions, you know, the way that we live, it reflects what's actually in our hearts. And so this rich man's actions, as he deliberately flaunts God's commandments, show that he does not love God. And that's further borne out in the third piece of evidence. In, in Luke 10, and Jesus is asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to get to the place where, where Lazarus has now ended up? And the answer that is given there is this, that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. And it's then here in Luke 10, you know, in response to this, um, you know, the, the giving of the greatest commandment, it's here that Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. It's, and it's in the Good Samaritan that we see what it means to love your neighbor. The, the Good Samaritan, he saw and he took pity on an injured man. He, he took action. He bandaged his wounds. He poured wine and oil on them. He put the man on his own donkey, which then meant that he wasn't riding the donkey. He was then forced to walk as he then sacrificed himself to, to the care of this injured man. He took care of him then at an inn. He paid two full days' wages for his care and he promised to reimburse any further cost. The good Samaritan loved his neighbor. And if the rich man loved God, he would obey God's commandments. And we've already seen, you know, seen him break the, the Sabbath. And now we see him fail to love his neighbor. He breaks the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. He just wanted to love himself. Because notice this, you know, don't miss this in the story. He actually knew who Lazarus was. As he looked across the distance between where he was and where Abraham was, he saw Lazarus at Abraham's side. And he recognized him. He knew who he was. Even more than that, he actually knew his name. He wasn't just some nameless, helpless, homeless, you know, beggar. He was someone whose name he knew. He knew his name to request his assistance. He knew that Lazarus was literally his neighbor. He would have passed him every time he went through his gate. But unlike the Samaritan... Even though this rich man knew his neighbor, he did not love him. 
And as John will write, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister, whoever hates a neighbor, claims to love God but hates a neighbor, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And so this man, if he really loved God, it would overflow to his care and concern for his neighbor. But it didn't. He had the resources to provide for Lazarus, but he loved only himself. So the man did not love God. And so if he were to spend eternity with God, well, that would have been hell for him. He didn't love God, so to spend eternity with him, that would have been, that would have been hell for him. And so he is consigned to hell without God. And without his goodness, not even a drop of water for his tongue. Recognizing then the reality of his plight, that he's then stuck in this torment without relief, he calls again to Abraham. Verse 27. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, if you can't help me, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The thing with these kind of gate of heaven type jokes is that they build and build and build until the punchline comes at the very end. And what Jesus does here is no different. As the story continues to build towards its conclusion, we see that the experience of hell has not changed this rich man or his heart at all. He still acts as if he's superior to, to Lazarus, and he's able to send him like a servant here and there. Lazarus, do this. Lazarus, do that. And, and if that were, in fact, the case, if he did actually have that kind of, I, I guess authority is the word, if, if that were the case, he'd send Lazarus first to help himself. And failing that, he'd then send him to help his own. But there's no repentance there's no repentance about his actions or his lack of actions towards Lazarus. There's no recognition of his own selfishness. He's still not concerned for his neighbor. Instead, he wants Abraham via Lazarus just to help his brothers, his family. And to the rich man's request to send Lazarus to warn his brothers, Abraham says, they've got Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And as a side note, as a extra sting to this story it's being told we see in verse 14 to the Pharisees you know to the religious leaders who, who knew the law front and back this is being told to the Pharisees who loved money and who were sneering at Jesus so Jesus is saying listen to Moses and the prophets which the Pharisees would think that they are doing but the rich man knows that this that's not going to cut it with my brothers. Uh, after all, he, he knows himself. He knows that he ignored Moses you know, in, in breaking the Ten Commandments. Why would his brothers be any different? 
They need something more, he says. They need someone from the dead to go back and speak to them because surely they'd respond to this. And then the punchline comes. Delivered to ones who think that they know what Moses and the prophets say so well. Delivered by the one who knows that he himself will die at their hands and then be resurrected to life and will come back from the dead. He says, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Abraham says, if they're not going to listen to the scriptures, then they're not going to listen to someone brought back to life. And we see this borne out throughout the Gospels. If we think again of, of the other Lazarus that we talked about earlier, Jesus is, is after, after Lazarus has come out of the tomb again, Jesus is then at a dinner in Bethany. And we read this, that a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and they came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Here is someone who has come back from the dead by the word and the power of Jesus. And instead of seeing that as a sign that points them to Jesus and a sign that points them to faith, <laughs> they end up just wanting to kill both of them. Even if so, They will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. But it's more than that too, isn't it? Jesus himself rises from the dead after three days in the tomb. And instead of that being a prompt to kind of reevaluate everything that they've thought about him, they, they double down and they orchestrate this whole cover-up to discount the resurrection. And, and as they deny that and cover that up, then they, then they don't have to believe in it. And we might think, you know, if only God will heal my mum, then I'll believe. If only God will get me my job back. If only God fill in the blank. We want a sign. We want to wonder because we think that then our belief will be bolstered and our faith will be incontrovertible. But the reality is Jesus did sign upon sign upon sign and it was never enough. For instance, he fed 5,000 people with just you know, a handful of loaves of bread. And then in his next interactions with those very same people, they say to him, well, what sign will you do to prove to us that, that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? It's like, excuse me? I just... It's never enough. In contrast, Jesus you know, walks along the road to Emmaus with disciples who were discouraged and confused by Jesus' crucifixion. And what he does with them is he brings them back to the scriptures, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. God has spoken to us in his word, and in that word he reveals himself and his salvation. We don't need to look anywhere else or, or for further proofs. Rather, we need to have a heart that he's willing to listen to what he's already said to us. That's the punchline to the rich man who ignored God. That's the punchline to the Pharisees who sneered at Jesus and at his teachings. And that's the punchline to us 
We need to be willing to listen to what he's already said to us. So what has God then said to us in the scriptures and specifically in this section of them that that we've been considering today? A, A few things for us to take away. First, this story shows us our circumstances, they are not an indicator of God's love and his presence with us. It's easy to believe in God's love for us when things are going well, isn't it? It's, and it's easy for us to question when things seem to be against us. I just finished the, reading the, the novel Silence, uh, which, ah, oh, so good. Uh, but it's about a Portuguese missionary priest to Japan in the 1600s who, in the face of persecution and suffering, asked the question time and time again throughout the novel about why is God silent? It's God's silence that, that he's referred to in the title. And at the end of the novel, the priest says to God, I resented your silence. To which God replies, I was not silent. I suffered beside you. God's love and his presence are constant through both the good times and the hard times. And we aren't to use our our circumstances to try to assess or evaluate whether God still loves us, whether God's still with us. His presence and his love for us are faithful and true through all things. And we need to hear that message in the scriptures and, and believe it. The second thing that we see in this story is that what we really love most, it overflows into our actions. Regardless of what we say, our love for God and our love for others or our lack of it is shown in how we actually behave. So if we love God, that has implications for how we live and it should be evident for other people to see. And if we love our neighbour, that has implications for how we live and that should be evident for others to see. Our our actions reveal what's really in our hearts. And so this story, as we pay attention to the words of God that he's already spoken to us, this story prompts us to reflect on our life and to see where our love really is. Thirdly, this story reminds us that this life that we are living now is temporary at best. For someone like Lazarus, that is such a glorious hope. This is good news. But the thing is, is that we can far too easily, like the rich man, be lulled into living as if we're already in heaven on this earth and to give them no thought to the life that is to come. But Jesus' story makes it clear that this life, that it will end, that judgment is real, and that this life is the only chance that we have to put our faith in Jesus and to receive his salvation. The rich man received his good things in his life at then the cost of his eternal comfort. He wasn't thinking about the next life because this life was so good. And so the story serves as a warning to us to not let our ease and our comfort in this temporary life make us miss out on our eternity. And the last point from the story, that was the punchline as Jesus delivered it, is for us to to listen to the word of God. Don't don't become blasé about it. 
Don't come to church and go, oh, it's the sermon now, now's the time I can take a nap. Don't ignore it. Don't disregard it. But read it. Listen to it. Know it. Study it. And through it, see Jesus. Jesus, who is the Word who has made flesh. And see the life that he caused us to live in response to the great salvation that he's given to us that we've already remembered together today through communion. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. And it comes to us with so much more than just Moses and the prophets. It comes to us with the stories of Jesus, the Word made flesh, dwelling among us as one of us and achieving for us life and salvation. And we can so easily get caught up in the things of this life that we become blasé about you. We can get so distracted in the busyness and the things that we have going on that we neglect your Word. We can get so preoccupied with ourselves and all the things that we've got to figure out and plan that we fail to worship you. And so, God, I pray that your word would speak to us this morning, that we're not needing any further sign or wonder, no specific answer to prayer or this condition to be met first, but instead... We will accept the, this great gift you've given to us, your word in the scriptures and your word in Jesus, and that we will listen to them and know them and know you who are revealed through them to us and respond to you in faith, in trust, in worship in all of our lives. May we not be like the rich man, we pray. May your, the story of today serve as a warning to us. And may we live the life that you are calling us to and enabling us to do so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.